Good morning. I am just beyond blessed to be here. My husband Steve is here with me this morning. We've already seen some friends, and it is a blessing to be here. I'm going to start right off by apologizing to whoever's running camera because I don't stand still very often, so sorry. Um, I love being a part in your neighborhood of the kingdom this morning. I love the kingdom of God, and, and I love all the neighborhoods and what all the churches in Bend are doing. I'm so excited about what's happening in our city. And I, I think sometimes people say, and I used to be one of them that said, why all the churches? Why can't they all just get together and do one big thing? Why can't we get a little unity here? But then I started thinking about how my husband and I intentionally had four different children. And they're similar. I mean, they all have the same mom and dad. They have the same DNA. They, they are raised in a family that has the same ultimate mission statement. But if you were to ask me which one of them is unnecessary, I would punch you. Because they are exceedingly necessary, every one of them. We wouldn't be what, who we are without our, our little guy's um, video game skills. We wouldn't. We wouldn't even know. We wouldn't know what Temple Runner is without our little Josiah. I mean, it's really important. And so we love what you're doing in this city. I love seeing what Antioch Church is doing for the cause of Christ in Bend, Oregon. And I speak on behalf of our leadership team at Westside and just say, we are so blessed and grateful to be co-laborers with you for Jesus Christ in Bend, Oregon. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Wow, thanks. Winston Churchill said, there comes to each in his life that very special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and invited to do a very special work, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for what would have been his finest hour. Isn't that an awesome quote? If that's the kind of quote I look at and go, shoot, I wish I would have said that first. I wish people would quote, that's so cool. And whether or not you agree with Churchill's politics, he got it right. We are all desperate to find real meaning in life. We're all looking for something that looks a little, I think, like purpose. But you know, in the church, we've kind of purpose-driven ourselves to death, maybe. That word might have lost its punch a little bit. And so I am captivated by this idea of finding your finest hour. What does that look like? What does it look like to say, I have found the place where I know my life really matters. I've accomplished something. I'm not sure. I know that I, I speak at a lot of women's events, and I've, I remember one conference where I prayed for hundreds of women, and we talked about fear, and, and we went through some really big fears in life, like fear of death, fear of losing a child, fear of abandonment, fear of losing the one you love, really big, big fears. But the one that got the most response by a long shot was fear of never finding your purpose. I think there's this, this innate concern that we say, could I get to the end of my life and I kept the checkbook balance and I kept the boss happy and I kept the crust cut off all the sandwiches and I got everyone to soccer practice on time, but in the end run, did I really make a difference? Did something really happen with my life worth writing about? Would have been Franklin say, either read some, uh, do something worth reading or do live something worth writing. Write something worth reading or live something worth writing. 
And, and so I think that we're on the search. We're on a hunt. We maybe don't even know it. What is our finest hour? Steve and I have four children. As I said, the oldest two, the oldest three are girls, and then there's our only begotten son, Josiah. He's the son of my old age. Um, but they range in age from, from 12 to 25. And so when our two oldest were little, we moved into a house that had, I'm not kidding, the ugliest wallpaper I have ever seen anywhere. It was really, really bad. It was like one of those homes where the owners shouldn't have been allowed into Home Depot because they just kept messing with stuff. And so we decided to get the wallpaper off the wall, but I am way too cheap to buy a steamer. So I, child labor was the answer. So I put my, because they're short and they can get the little spaces. So just, that's too hard. So my kids, my two little girls get going on it. And they had hung this wallpaper to survive any sort of nuclear attack and bend. Like the house would be falling, but the wallpaper would stand. So um, my girls are working on it, and they're just getting little teeny pieces off the wall. Just, it's just slow going. And just when I'm ready to just say, let's move, let's sell the house and move, um, my little one, she was six at the time, Victoria, she starts getting these big sheets of wallpaper off. She hits a stride, and she is doing it. And, and Whitney looks at her, and she says, Tori, you are so good at this. And Victoria looked at Whitney, and she shook her little finger in her face, and she said, Whitney... I was made for this. It's awesome. Made for this. I don't know how you guys are raising your kids, but we're raising ours so they find their purpose by the age of six. That's all I'm saying. I'll take questions about that afterwards. <laughs> actually, it didn't work. She didn't become a wallpaper stripper. She actually didn't become a stripper of any kind. So we're glad. Um, she had her finest hour in that moment. And she's had a lot since. I had four of my finest hours at, right on the heels of four of the worst hours in my life. They were the hours when I was certain I was going to die and I was going to kill the doctor and the nurse and my husband as well. And instead of killing anyone, I gave birth to baby humans. It was awesome. And I remember I looked in the face of these little babies and I remember thinking, I just partnered with God. I just... This matters. This maybe doesn't matter, but surely this matters. And I also partnered with Steve, but for our purposes, this is God. Finest hour. I knew I was made for that. And then another finest hour came one day when I was shopping at uh, the farmer's market outside of St. Charles. It's right near my house. And I ran over there real quick just to buy some vegetables. And while I was there, I remembered that this lady from our church was, um, she was elderly, and I'd only met her once before, but she was really lovely. And I knew that she was dying there in St. Charles. And I just felt the Holy Spirit tap me on the shoulder and invite me to participate in his work by going to see Dorothy. And I, of course, immediately responded, No. I immediately said, oh, really? I don't want to go. Oh, that sounds kind of sad. And I'm really busy and my kids are here and what are they going to do? But I am telling you, if there's a scripture in Isaiah where Isaiah says, God put his strong hand on my shoulder and he told me which way to go. Do you remember your parents doing that when you were little and you started getting out of hand and you felt this hand on your shoulder? That was my moment. I knew he said go. And so <clears throat> I went up and found her room and she was awake. And I started talking with her, and she told me about 
her husband who she had loved so much and he had gone on to be with Jesus before her. And she told me about the children who she adored and she told me about her life as a nurse. And throughout our conversation, she kept saying to me, I can't believe you've come. I just, I can't believe you've come. And so then I prayed with her. And in that moment, I don't, I don't know how to articulate it. All I can tell you is it was just like when I had looked in the face of my baby so fresh from God, standing in that room with a woman who was just about to meet him. It was brilliant. It was beautiful. I was almost afraid to open my eyes because I wondered what I would see in that hospital room. And at the end, I said, Dorothy, it has been so good to be with you. And she looked at me and she said, it has been so good to be with you, Mary. She didn't know who I was. In fact, I know the person she thought I was. Mary had been, the, Cliff and Mary were the first pastors of Westside Church 30 years ago when Dorothy first started attending. And she had long since moved uh, far away. She lived in Africa for a while. She lived in California. And please, can you just for a minute wrap your brain around the idea that in Dorothy's final moments, God sent Mary to see her. In one of the finest hours of my life, and I, I have had some great ones. I've gotten to speak to a lot of people. I get to do a job I love. I get to raise kids that I think are just world changers. But I am telling you, that was one of the finest moments of my life, and she didn't even know who I was. There's something about, about connecting to this thing of purpose that is brilliant for us. And so... I think when we look, there, there's been this trend in the last 10 years to look at life in, in a way of, look at the gospel as a narrative. We look at theology more as a story than as a, a four spiritual laws or bullet points. And hallelujah, that's a good change. That's cool that we're doing that. But with every upside, there's a downside. And the upside of narrative theology is that it's compelling and engaging. The downside is that it's hard to listen to a grand story without imagining our place in it. And when we imagine our place in it, we're usually what? Center stage. We're usually pretty much in the middle of it. And I mean, I never remember reading Cinderella when I was a little girl and hoping I could be the maid. Did you ever read, you know, watch Lone Ranger and hope you could be the guy who cleans up after silver? Nobody does. You don't imagine yourself as a side player. You imagine yourself right in the middle of the story. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher decided that we would do a play. And she didn't want us to just do any play. She wanted us to do a play that would astound and amaze our parents. And so she picked for her fifth grade class, Julius Caesar. <laughs> just for, visualize for a minute, fifth graders in togas, and you're there. And, and my class was, was appalled. We were like, we can't do Julius Caesar. And she said, of course you can. If you can read, you can memorize. And if you can memorize, you can do a play. And so the class worked really hard on memorizing because they, and so like they would, they would know whose line came after whose line. That's how they figured it out. And so the day came for the play. And the star of the play was my friend Richard Newell. And I didn't actually have a role in the play because she said I was too gifted probably true. Um, my role in the play was to stand behind. Do you remember the big freestanding chalkboards? Giant chalkboards. My job was to stand behind the chalkboard and whisper the lines in the off chance 
crazy that anyone would forget their line to a Shakespeare play. And so I'm behind the blackboard. The class, the parents are all there. The class comes out. They get ready to do their, their thing. D uh, Richard Newell is the star. He, and who's the star of Julius Caesar? Is it Brutus? I... Okay, well, I don't remember. I was just the line whisperer. I don't know. And so he gets out there, and I'm telling you, it is deer in the headlights. He cannot remember his first line to save his life. And so I'm frantically whispering from behind the chalkboard. I'm just whispering, whispering. Finally, he gets his line said, but something about him forgetting throws the whole cast of characters off. No one can remember their line, and just like dominoes, the whole thing. They're, I'm frantically whispering every line of the play through the whole story, through the whole thing. And finally we get to the end, and I'm like, phew, we did it, we're through it. These parents are none the wiser. We got through that play. And then they took their bow, and I finally realized what had happened as I walked from behind the blackboard and got my first ever standing ovation. <laughs> they had heard. They had heard every single whisper. <laughs> the people lost their place because they knew the lines, but they didn't know the story. They didn't understand the infrastructure of the Roman Empire in the year, what, 70 AD. They didn't understand that. They didn't know how the story went. They only knew the lines that somebody told them to say. And I think that we are often wondering, what is my place in this story? How do I find it? Where do I go to find it? Who would know if I don't know? My favorite story is like every story. It starts just like every story. It starts once upon a time. God created the heavens and the earth. If you're looking for a text today, we're starting in Genesis 1-1, and we're going to go through Revelation, so I hope you don't have a roast in the oven. So I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, who created? God. The story is actually about God. The story is not actually about the creation. The creation is a bit player. God is the center of the story. He's the one that does the action. In the beginning, once upon a time, God creates the heavens and the earth, and into the heavens and into the earth, he speaks abundance. He speaks flowers and trees and rocks and Mount Bachelor and Pilot Butte. I don't understand Pilot Butte. It's my least favorite thing in this city. I'm going to talk with him about it sometime. But he created it because he thought it was awesome. All these things are created and then he sets man in the middle of it, and he says, really, honestly, a no-boundaries life. He does not give them a bunch of rules. He doesn't actually give them any rules. He just wants to make sure they have a choice whether to follow him or not, and so he puts two trees in the garden, and he says no to those. It's funny, I have a friend who told me once, I'm too much of a free spirit for God. And I was like, are you kidding me? God is the freest spirit there is. You think you can out-free God? There's no way. He's not the rules guy. He's the free guy. And so God puts Adam and Eve, and if you can just, I, I told them I need a whiteboard because I'm old school. Our church has one of the iPad dry things, but I don't know how to use that thing. I would, I would have to have my 12-year-old come use that thing. So I'm going to mime out my message for you. <laughs> but God creates the heavens and the earth. It's his purpose, and he puts Adam and Eve into his purpose. And just like every good story, this story has a villain. And the villain slithers into the garden, and it is a serpent. And Satan comes to Eve, and he offers her, of all things, food. Eve isn't hungry. Eve has an abundantly plentiful smorgasbord in the garden. There are no restrictions on how much Eve can eat. 
And so he can't appeal to her on the basis of hunger. So he appeals to her and says, wouldn't you like to be like God? Wouldn't you like to be like the star of the story? Wouldn't you like to create something that's your own? God's purpose can go on up here, and yours can exist just right here. And so Eve tumbles from the storyline of God, and Adam comes after her. And just like the cast in my fifth grade play, when Richard Newell lost his first line, all of humanity tumbles after Eve. And we all fall, and we fall, and we fall. And honestly, we've been eating the apple ever since. Let's not just blame Eve. But we fall, and we fall, and we fall, until God is sorry he ever made the story start in the first place. But he calls to Noah, and he says, would you be willing to step back into my storyline? And so Noah steps up into the storyline of God. And there he builds the ark, and we're saved. And then we fall. And we fall, and we fall, and we fall. And then God calls to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, would you leave the country that you're in and leave your family and go to a city that I will show you? Essentially, God says to Abraham, would you be willing to leave your story and step into mine, not knowing how it will read? People quote Abraham a lot as a prosperity guy, but honestly, Abraham, a famine is what drove him where he was going. So Abraham says yes, and he steps up into the storyline of God. And after him, there's Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, his sons and grandsons, who make mistakes, and they screw up, and they do silly things. But overwhelmingly, they live in an awareness that God is doing something bigger than what we can do. We're going to live inside his story. And so they live well, and then the people of Israel fall into 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. And God calls to Moses, and he says, Moses, will you step up into the storyline, and will you drag all these people with you? And so Moses steps up, and Joshua after him, and they lead people back into the story of God. And the people are great, and they're saved, and they get the promised land, and milk and honey, and all the awesome things that happen for them. And then they start to say, you know, we'd rather give a little pieces of our heart out to a lot of gods rather than our whole heart to one God. And they fall. And they fall and they fall, and we see the season of the judges, and the judges, 13 of them, some of them do okay, some of them are pretty dismal. And then God calls ultimately to David, and he says, David, will you lead the people back into devotion to the story of God? And David says yes, and he steps up to God's story. And Solomon after him is a little wobbly, and then comes the era of the kings. In all the kings of Israel and Judah, there are only eight who are aware and love and follow the story of God. One of them is Josiah. Our son is named after him. And I love this moment where King Josiah who steps up onto the throne when he's eight years old. And he, he uh, it, it doesn't know. He doesn't have a father who's led him. He doesn't know. And when he's 26, they're going through the temple, and they uncover the law of Moses. And Josiah opens the law, and he says, we are too far from the story. We've gotten off the story. We've got to come back to the story of God. And the people follow him, and there's great revival, and we're all saved until his sons take over, and they fall. And then eventually, the people of Israel land in 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak to anyone. No one tells the story. And then the silence is split by our hero, 
Jesus comes to tell the story himself. Jesus comes and moves into our narrative in order to bring us his, in order to tell us who he is, in order to say there's something bigger that you could be living for. And, and he, we love him, so we kill him. That's what we do. He, he's hung on the cross, and in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he redeems ultimately all mankind and launches the work of the church. And the church does okay as long as it's connected to his story. But the farther the church gets from the actual story of the cross, the farther we fall outside of our purpose. And the church has had some pretty dismal hours in the last 2,000 years. In fact, I have this theory. I was just thinking about it yesterday. I think that teachers and theologians and preachers in the church really have gotten this role, kind of this center stage role in Christendom. And I think maybe they actually are supposed to be the people who live behind the chalkboard and whisper the lines and remind people this is the story of God. We're supposed to equip the saints with the story but when we take center stage, then the storyteller becomes the story, and that's never been God's idea. And so the church comes, and there's wobbly moments. And then at the end of our Bibles, we see what book? Revelation. Anyone understand it? No. <laughs> it's an awesome book. Um, Revelation. And in Revelation, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And God's, even though, if you could see my awesome diagram, imagine it in your head. Um, God creates the heavens and the earth, and people come in, out, in, out, in, out of the storyline of God, like a heart monitor. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And in the end, we see a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, God created a new beginning. God's purpose is like a red line going from beginning to new beginning. His purpose has always been steady. Even though man comes in and out of the story, God's story never changes. It's never altered. He never wrings his hand and goes, oh no, I'm going to have to write a subplot because they just messed up my line. Never. God is always steady. And his story can be told in three words. Create, restore, redeem. He creates something beautiful. We screw it up. He restores it, and then he redeems us ultimately. There, I, I think we could add a word correct in there, but that's re restoration is correction. You can Bible roulette it every way you want. You can put your finger on a verse, and you will see where God is creating, restoring, or redeeming. Even when he brings correction, he's bringing restoration. And so God's storyline is consistent, and it's like a red line that runs over our universe— and it stays steady. And when we step up onto it, we know our finest hour. When we connect with what he is doing, when we're willing to not be the center, the main player in our own story, but we will be willing to be a small player in his big one, that's when we know true fulfillment. God has wired us up like that so that our finest moments are always going to be connected to his eternal purpose. That's how we're made. And I think that sometimes we look at this book like it's sort of an ancient document and we're trying to measure our lives next to something that already happened a long time ago. I think sometimes it's like um, an old map, like a map to places you've never been. Like I'm, I have a map in my office that I love of the Roman Empire in the early church era and I love it even though it's not that good to me now. And uh, my daughter went to, uh, with a team to Skid Row to minister about a 
week ago, and they ended the trip, as all trips should, at Magic Mountain, because that's what you do with teenagers. And she was in the restroom at Magic Mountain, and somebody came in, and she was holding the map they had given her at the entryway to Magic Mountain. And she said to Tess, she opened the map up, and she said, I'm sorry, can you help me find the you are here symbol? Can you just think about that for a minute and let that settle in? We're so connected to cell phones that our cell phone can always tell us not where to go but where we are, that we think a map is going to tell me at any moment where, I, where am I in this picture. I think that's what the Bible is like for some of us. It's a map to peace and love and righteousness and joy and prosperity and goodness and healing and abundance, but where am I in this picture? Can you show me you are here? You know what? I can. Because... <clears throat> Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. Revelation, God comes and restores the heavens and the earth. Has revelation happened yet? No. Not unless you saw seven horses I didn't see. Revelation hasn't happened yet. And so between Jude and Revelation, you are here. We are still living in the pages of this thing. This is still being written. The works of our lives and our finest moments are still being recorded somewhere. I am convinced of it. In fact, I have a theory that once we get to heaven, we'll be issued new Bibles that have the battles of Joshua and the battles of Bo, the battles of Steve. God will tell the story. David said, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. God is writing your story inside of his story. Does that seem selfish? kind of egocentric, that God wants to attach your great purpose to his eternal story? I don't think it is. I'm going to tell you why. There's a scripture that has always given me fits theologically. Actually, not theologically, just emotionally. And it's found twice in the New Testament. It's found in Acts 10 and Romans 2. Peter and Paul, respectively, both say, This I know, God does not show favoritism. That's a okay, we could all compare our stories in this room, and some of us would wonder, really? God doesn't show favoritism? I used to glibly quote it, and then I went to Africa. My husband and I are on the board of an orphanage, and we have supported the work of the orphanage for a long time, but finally we went to see it. And when I looked in the eyes of children who had lost everything, when I looked in the eyes of a little girl who was 12 years old, the same age as my little girl at the time, whose mother had died in childbirth, and she had raised her baby brother on the street, feeding him dirt for three months, I said, really? God does not show favoritism? I don't know. That does not sound square to me. And then February of 2011, I sat at Providence Hospital and I listened to a doctor say that my husband, the strongest man I know, has Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig's disease is a two to five year prognosis and the process is worse than the prognosis. And I sat there and I just said, God, really? Really, there are so many men who don't want to do anything with their lives. There are men that just exist to hurt people and this man has given his strength and all his muscles to your kingdom, and this is what our story looks like. And honestly, for about two weeks, I threw down my pen, 
And I just said, I give up. I don't know how to write this thing. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know what this looks like. Ultimately, God, I don't understand you, but I trust you with our story. And so 18 years later, let me tell you this. Here's why I love the fact that God connects our finest moments with his eternal purpose. Because on his red line that runs over us in eternity, there is no ALS. And I know this because I am watching my husband as he is deteriorated by a disease that wants to take all his muscles and strength away. And in the process, he is experiencing more purpose and life and destiny than all of his 50 years combined before it. I know it. I I listened to um, your pastor's message from a couple of weeks ago on creating culture. And I loved it. It was awesome. You were blessed to sit under the teaching of Ken Weitzma. And I heard him say, God uses persecution to scatter the church. The church was meant to stay mobile. And I'm telling you, God has used it. God, who could have snapped his fingers and kept that diagnosis from him in a heartbeat. Make no mistake, God is not the God of ALS, but he is the boss of it. God is not, he's not worried. But he didn't create a disease like that. And he could have chosen to snap his fingers blow that thing away, have us never experience it, but he chose not to. Instead, he's caught that lightning bolt in his bottle, and he is using it for our great joy and his great glory. He is. He has scattered us into a community that we never would have gone to otherwise. We never would have gone to the ALS community and loved them otherwise. We maybe would have felt sorry for them, but it's different. The way you love someone when you share their pain than the way you love them when you just kind of know about it. God has given us credibility to speak with them because we are numbered with them. He can use everything to bring you to the red line. He can use everything in your life. There's this, our, our feet are planted today on the timeline that is absolute July 15th, 2012, here we are, stuck here, stuck in this day of our story. But over our head and all around us, God is at work. He is writing something. He is doing something. And we choose whether or not we will connect with it. We choose. God, are you going to show me? We've chosen to connect with his story for a community that we really would have liked to turn our heads from otherwise. And we're still praying for healing. But you know what? People tell us all the time, and I'm so, I, I really truly am sorry if this, if this hurts, if this messes with your theology. We are praying for healing, and people say, this is God's will. God's will is healing. Imagine how that would change the world, how it would impact people if Steve was healed. What a testimony that would be. You know what? I don't know. Not for the people who aren't healed. My daughter said the other day, if I heard about someone being healed of ALS, mostly I would wonder, why not dad? We submit to the suffering because it brings us into a place where we can be more effective than we have ever been with the time that we have to do it. Because honestly, this life is the short one anyway. So this principle of finding his story is all through the word of God, all through it. We see it when Jesus runs into this lady at a well. 
and he initiates conversation with her, and she is disqualified from his story. She has no business being in the Bible. She is disqualified by her race. She is disqualified by her gender, and she is disqualified by her, her reputation. She was handed a terrible story at birth, and then she picked up the pen, and she wrote her own drama inside of that thing. And he says to her, and, and I, I wish we had time to just look at, tear this kind of apart in the original language, but Jesus says to that woman, the hour is coming, and now is, now, right now, when the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you hear the invitation in his words? He is saying to her, little, broken, disreputable woman, before she has prayed one prayer, before she has gone and moved out of her boyfriend's house, before she has paid one tithe check, you are invited into my story right now. No education, paying no dues. She hasn't got it all figured out, but he says, come into my story. It's beautiful on the red line. It's beautiful. <clears throat> so how do we do it? How do we find these finest hour moments? I don't know. Don't you love that when you have a speaker come in who's supposed to know and they just don't? <laughs> All I can tell you is what's working for me right now. The first thing is, I think in order to find our place in his story, we have to dive into this story more than ever before. And I don't mean more time or more reading. I think I mean less reading and more living it, more absorbing it. Um, Sometimes, in order to really connect with the Word of God, you've got to throw out that darn Bible reading plan. Say, you know what? This is not about checking a box. This is not about showing up because this, the page tells me I have to. Oh, no, it's Leviticus today. Shoot, that's when February comes around and I'm sunk. Um, <laughs> it's reading yourself in the story. The Bible is not about you, but it absolutely is about you. It absolutely is. Before Steve got diagnosed, I had been studying all the battles of the Bible. And all of a sudden, I got up in September, and I looked at the battle of Joshua, and I could hear the arrows whizzing by my head. This is about me. This is about my battle. He's writing, he's writing me into the story. I want to live something worth writing about. I want to know what this is. I want to live inside these pages so that I can live it out. The woman with the alabaster box pours her oil out on Jesus' feet, and he says, everywhere this is told, people are going to remember this story. They're going to talk about her story. Dive into the story. The second thing is a lot more ethereal and harder to wrap your brain around, but, but sometimes in order to find the red line, to find the story of God at work in your life, you've got to fire your narrator. You know? You've got to fire the voice inside your head that tells you, A, you're not good enough. You're never going to be able to do anything. Or the voice inside your head that tells you, I would love to accomplish something grand. I would love to experience my finest moment as soon as I get an education, as soon as I get out of debt and raise the money to be a missionary, as soon as I quit this stupid job that's holding me back from achieving the storyline of God. Stop that. Do it right now. Jump into a story right now because the red line is right now over our heads. He is doing something right now in our city, and we can choose to connect with it or not. I have a friend who went to a funeral recently, <clears throat> and it was a funeral for an elderly lady 
who had lived the last probably 10 years of her life in bed. She was an invalid. She was disabled. She couldn't go anywhere. And she thought her life was over. And she asked God, what can I do? I can't do anything. I can't even leave my house. How can I impact your kingdom? And what she decided she would do is write letters. And she wrote letter after letter after letter to people. She asked him, who needs to hear from you today? And she'd just write. And at her funeral, people got up with tattered letters in their hand. And they told stories like, this is the letter I got on the day that I thought I couldn't keep living. This is the letter I got on the day when I really felt invisible to the whole world and even to God. She had no resources to accomplish anything. But when you step to the red line, you're not in charge of resources. There's a whole department for that. You step up to the red line, he will resource you. I am humbled when I look at that story and I go, I have two legs and two arms and I sometimes don't want to get out of bed. There is work to be done. There's a story to be lived. She's living it. So fire the voice that says you're nothing. And fire the voice that says you're everything. Because we're not. No matter how much God invites us to be a participant in his story, we are still not the star of it. We are still not trying to, because honestly, when we start to create this life in the lowlands down here where we're building our own story, you got to kick and shove and compete to get your story to be heard. It's not about us. My daughters were having an argument the other night at the dining room table, a debate, it was a debate, about uh, Lancelot versus Gawain. Anyone? Knights of the Round Table? Which is the greatest knight? We are that geeky of a family, I do not even pretend. Um, they're arguing over who was the greatest knight of the round table. And, and I loved hearing that because they did cool things, and their stories are great, but the story is still about who? Arthur. It's about the king. The story is about the king. And you are invited to be a knight in it. You're invited to be the coolest knight if you want to be. You're invited to do what you can do. Be a part of his story. But just make sure you know that the red line belongs to him. It is all about him. It is all about his story, his work in our planet, his eternal, incredible work. And he graciously says, wouldn't you like to experience life inside my story? There comes to each in his life that very special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and invited to do a very special work unique to him and fitted to his talents. What tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified or just unaware of what could have been his finest Jesus, we thank you. <clears throat> I am in awe of your great love today. I am in awe of your grace for us, your kingdom coming to our right now, right here lives. It is too wonderful for words. We love who you are. We love what you do. We worship you because you're worthy. We give you glory because you are so worth it. We honor your work in our lives and we join up 
We connect intentionally with your story today. God, we ask that as we walk into Starbucks, you would alert us to the story happening all around us. You would show us who to talk to, where to go, what to say. God, we ask that as we shop at Farmer's Market, you would show us what's around us, where's the red line. As we go to the job we hate or the job we love, you would show us your kingdom purpose at work all around us and show us how to participate in it. We don't want to compete with your glory. We want to multiply it. We want our lives to be the, 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 the kind of thing that gives glory to your name. We want to live something worth writing about. We want to pour our offering out at the feet of Jesus, the only one who's worthy, and just say thank you that you've called us to the kingdom. Whether we can walk and talk and speak or not, whether we feel gifted or not, whether we feel ready or not, whether we feel confident or trained or educated or not, you have chosen for whatever reason to use us in your world for this moment. We thank you for our spot on the timeline. We thank you that you've chosen to put us here. We thank you that you've called us to be a part of your kingdom in this amazing moment. We give you glory and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Antioch. You have been a joy.